Are you a curator? In the digital age, curation is something you got to know about. Welcome to the Undergrad Podcast Lab. I'm Dr. Gideon Burton. I want to spend this episode talking about a very important principle of digital culture that pertains to podcasting and many other things. So in the spirit of past episodes where I've talked about things like the long tail, the rise of the amateur, design thinking, I would now want to talk about curation. Now, I am going to be uh, doing a shorter and updated version of a longer video lecture that I've already have um, posted online. Uh, some of the examples that I may refer to it might be more useful to see those visually, and so I will give you the name of um, a URL that you can go to if you'd like to see the um, uh, presentation that I am I'm working from. Uh, so the URL for the video lecture is a bitly short link, it's, uh, and there's no caps in this URL. It's bit.ly slash Burton hyphen curation bitly um, will take you to this YouTube uh, video lecture it's, it's about an hour long and yeah go ahead listen to it on double speed I don't care and there are some sections of that that will be of less interest but um, there are some visuals there that might be very useful to help you understand this and if you wanted to see the visuals without having to go through the uh, the video lecture, I can also direct you to the Prezi presentation that is um, what I'm using in the video lecture. And so it's sort of like getting the PowerPoint slides for the lecture. So if you'd like to do that, the link for that is bit.ly slash Burton with a capital B hyphen curation with a capital C. I hope that's not confusing, but the version of the bit.ly link that has a capital B and a capital C takes you to the slides and the one that has no caps at all takes you to the video lecture. Okay. All right. So I'm going to kind of walk through this uh, a little more quickly uh, and uh, hopefully help you understand how uh, curation is, is a uh, phenomenon and a habit in digital culture. And uh, it, it's, it's something to do with how we organize content on the web. It's something to do with how we build our public identity as we curate content and publish that content in various ways. It's something that cuts across a lot of different platforms and a lot of different media. And the, one of the main reasons that I'd like to introduce it today goes hand in hand with the idea of design thinking. Now, how does that work? Well, if you recall the episode where I talked about design thinking as one of three digital principles, um, a lot of that has to do with an iterative process where you are uh, making some sort of interim artifacts or prototypes, provisional content that you're floating out there so that it is something that people can respond to and then you can get feedback and perfect it and iterate again and on you go. That's part of the whole design process, this design thinking. Well, curation kind of fits in, in an interesting way with that. It could be seen as, uh, because when you're curating something, it can be seen either, either as 
product or as process, an end in itself or something on the way to something else. I'll circle back to that. But the way I'm trying to discuss it with my current students who are involved in podcasting is um, that it can be something that will help you to figure out um, a, a certain kind of understanding of podcasting that will uh, be a step towards creating your own podcasts. All right, I'll come back to that. Let me just explain curation. All right, so it used to be that curation was a uh, something that professionals did, like uh, there's a curator at a museum or there is a curator at a library, and they establish certain collections, and that's part of their, their uh, professional expertise is to um, use their acumen to carefully uh, select and, and order things uh, so that they're most meaningful to the, the patrons of the museum or the library. But the history of, of curating goes way back, and in, in some ways in its history, it is, it is um, tied in more with the amateurism that is now very prevalent in digital culture. So you can go back in time, we're actually gonna go forward in time and find out how amateur curating was a big deal. All right, so let's talk the 18th century. And we have gentlemen of leisure who, uh, during a time when uh, Europeans at least, uh, there was a lot of, um, there were colonies and there were central empires, uh, you know, the French empire and the, the British Empire and so on. And, and as you started having imports and exports and things started to be gathered back to the mother country and you have this um, phenomenon of strange and exotic things start to be collected by people who have the means to collect them. In fact, our modern day museums are really an outcome of this enlightenment period habit of rich people uh, collecting a bunch of stuff that they liked in into a private room in their mansion or whatever. These were often called um, curiosity cabinets, or sometimes they were called uh, uh, Wunderkammer, the German for a, a wonder room. And and so imagine, if you will, someone who is, uh, uh, oh, someone brings back a, a shrunken pygmy skull, skull from wh wherever, and, and someone else brings back a, the skeleton of a weird fish, and uh, someone else brings a you know a, a chunk of a hieroglyphic from uh, Egypt, and and you have the the means to start collecting these things, and and so you throw them all together and put them on your walls, or you have a special room, and you start having you know cabinets to display stuff, and it, it's a it's a curiosity because these are not things that are very scientific, but they are unusual, and so they they draw attention, and so it's it's something that reflects the, the individual interests of the collector and a, to agree an extension of him or herself that, you know, this is sort of who I am by the sorts of things that I'm drawn to or the means that I have to collect them. And so that's where we have this, this amateurism going on. There wasn't a real science behind it. It was just a matter of, you know, who had the means and the desire to start collecting stuff. And that stuff could be books. It could be uh, natural history items. It, it could be, you know, rocks or fossils or it could be artworks and each one of these would be a, a separate sort of thing okay so when when people started to gather a bunch of stuff the next thing that would happen is we got to put this into some kind of order so it makes sense even just 
you know, logically or aesthetically within the, the display place where one is putting it. Okay, well, let's put all the stuff from Africa over on this side, and we'll put all the stuff from the uh, South America on that side. Or there are other ways that people can organize things like, okay, well, let's put all the fossils in this part of the room and all the books on that part of the room. And and so there's this process that happens where you, you start in a very informal, amateur way, just collecting stuff for whatever reason. But as you start getting a, a certain critical mass of stuff, it's like, hmm, we need to have some sort of organizing principles so that this makes sense to people or is attractive to them. And so that's this process of moving from a more casual kind of collecting to a more formal kind of curating where you're you're now thinking seriously about taxonomy or other sorts of schema that help you to make sense and order things okay now let's talk about how collecting is happening in the digital age uh, i don't think it's particularly happening with the wunderkammer or, or curiosity cabinets in in physical spaces uh, i suppose there's still rich people doing that here or there but where you have an enormous amount of collecting going on nowadays is uh, through digital means. And even if you're collecting things that are physical in nature, the example I give on my presentation is if people are, say, collecting figurines, you know, action figures. But you find them and you talk about them online. And that's where we have long tail things coming in as well. We have the, the long tail of niche interests and it turns out that oh you can connect with lots of other people who collect figurines or may maybe it's not just figurines maybe you're just collecting uh you know marvel universe characters or something like that and you can um find these things and uh buy and sell them and and, and get connected with online communities to discuss them all through these various digital means so our, our digital means of communication have uh, awakened the appetite for and helped uh, give the means for doing this kind of amateur collecting and curating. Okay, so that, that's, that's, that's good. Next thing is I want to talk about different kinds of curation. One is thinking about curation as expression. Another is thinking of curation as marketing, and third, thinking of it as a mode of understanding. All right, I will explain. Curation as expression. Um, this is this is something where um, uh, you explore your own interests and share those interests with other people uh, as you start to gather things together. So the example I gave in the in the video is someone who might collect videos together of ski jumps and maybe you're a skier maybe you love the olympics so you you make a, a playlist and uh, on youtube or something and it, it's highlights of all the best ski jumps that you can find that sort of thing and then you might share that playlist and it sort of ties in with your your own identity so i in the video if you want to see me doing a ski jump you can see me wearing a helmet camera doing a pretty awesome ski jump that was nothing Olympic about it, but it, an example of here I am an enthusiast, an amateur, and I'm into skiing, and so I might be the sort of person who might then go online and collect ski jump videos and, and uh, maybe post them as, as a kind of personal expression. Okay, uh, there's there's a lot of that sort of thing that, that people do, um, and I wanted to mention then 
uh, various places where there are platforms for um, curating digitally. So the one that I just mentioned was a, a video playlist. There are playlists available on you know, other content platforms such as um, you know, Spotify or any of the music services that are out there. Uh, there's a way that you can curate content. There's also a way for you to be able to consume others curated content and sometimes that's of a more professional nature sometimes it's of a more uh, volunteer nature so it that is evident in audio and video content platforms it's also very much a big deal on pinterest so if you are a pinner if you're part of uh, that community then you know what it's all about the various boards that you have on pinterest are ways of collecting items and pictures about things from around the web that have to do with an event like a wedding or an interest like cooking or whatever you you want and this is a, a very fertile ground for uh, online curating every time someone is creating a board they're labeling it they're selecting it they, they're curating digital content another place where uh, this sort of thing is is evident is with amazon wish lists so if pretty much everyone uses amazon nowadays amazon has uh, a way that if you if you come across some item you can click on it and save it to either a public or a private wish list and and this is uh, uh, you know it's like a wedding registry I'd like to have these various books or other Amazon products and so you let people know that this is the list of stuff that I'm interested in well some people like me uh, aren't using it for people to give me things um, although I did have one you know, favorite student who managed to find my wish list and give me a book from that, and and uh, she did get that automatic A for the semester. But anyway, um, I make all kinds of wish lists on Amazon because it's a way of organizing the things that I'm exploring on their platform. Most of which I have no intention of buying whatsoever, but I have uh, you know my research areas like digital culture and new media or like education and literacy or e-learning or I have a, a, a wish list for uh, films and music um, and you know all kinds of stuff alright well and that's just a place that I can keep stuff and it helps me in it later I, I, I will end up going back and purchasing some of these things I'm sure Amazon's very grateful for that but in the meantime it's a place where I can uh, uh, gather these uh, things that um, um, are thematically related and and uh, relate to my interests and if I want to I can share those with other people um, okay so there's Amazon there's Pinterest that's good all right the, the second way I wanted to talk about uh, curation is as marketing and specifically as content marketing now I'm an English professor and I am not in the business of conducting business or teaching people about the world of business, but there are some very important principles to understand about how businesses are using content marketing as a form of curation, and it, it, it's really helpful to understand that. So um, the example that I give in my um, uh, presentation that I'm referring to is that you have this uh, publication by uh, what is it, Land's End, that they put out this, this uh, magazine called Apostrophe. And so they, they will um, talk about, oh, I don't know what my example is, a visit to um, the 
to main if you're going to main and so it's like a, a magazine it has recommendations of you know places you might want to go get a meal or interesting places you might want to shop or whatever this has nothing to do with clothing directly it's a clothing company so why are they putting out this magazine that's all about you know visiting a specific location well it's pretty easy to see that this is an example of content marketing you are creating you're curating content that has something that that keeps it together in this case uh, a local interest in visiting a specific location um, that it would be valuable for travelers and wow you know maybe I really want to visit Cape Elizabeth or maybe I want to go to the Gorham bike and ski shop or maybe I want to visit the Portland Lobster Company all right it's not as though Land's End has is, is getting um, you know paid advertising from these companies they're just collecting valuable content it's valuable to the people that they ultimately want to market their clothing to so content marketing is to a large degree a matter of uh, uh, creating a brand that resonates with a lifestyle that is in the same demographic or target market for your ultimate customers and so it ends up being a great service because you have a lot of free and quality content that's put together uh, that you know I can read this apostrophe magazine without having to to buy it or buy any lands and clothing so it's an end in itself but it is also something that creates a, uh, an identity, a brand that might lead then to a commercial transaction later on. So that happens all the time in, in different uh, areas, not just with uh, print magazines. You, you have that like on, on eBay. So I, I found an example of someone who uh, was uh, uh, selling makeup on eBay and she has a, a YouTube channel where she has curated a set of um, makeup tutorials okay so people want to learn how to put on eyebrows or figure out how to do that cool shading on their eyelids or whatever they they um, they watch those videos they find them and they watch them on YouTube and oh by the way there's a link in in the description of YouTube video to uh, this woman's uh, makeup kits that she sells on eBay all right so this is also known as a, as a freemium model for content online where you, you, you create something that is of genuine value. In this case, she's created a set of videos. Some of them may be ones that she's created herself, but some might be others she's just found and, and, and she's done the service of finding the good stuff and bringing it together for those interested in this topic. So you create something of value. It's an end in itself, but it might be also a way to um, take it a step further for certain potential customers. Okay. And uh, there, there's lots of examples of this sort of thing. Um, the people who do content marketing talk about content creation in terms of five steps. Choose a topic, find quality sources of content, organize that content so you review and you filter out the garbage from the gems. Fourth step, you create a new piece of content that, that has added, added value and some kind of brand personality with it. And then finally, fifth, you publish and promote this through whatever channels, usually through the social media. Okay, so we can see how that works. Um, there's so much that is out there online. There's so much chaos. There's a big problem with a, a low signal to noise ratio. That signal to noise ratio can be reduced by people who are willing to do the sifting, do the filtering, and then 
advertise the results of that uh, filtering for other people to benefit from. Thank you, curators. Uh, they can often uh, cut through the, the mess of things and give you something that's relevant. All right. A third way of understanding curation is curation for understanding. Um, now, there's some interesting history on this. How much of it will I tell you? Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Curating can be as simple as making a list. Uh, the example that I show on the video lecture is that someone has found the, the author F. Scott Fitzgerald, his required reading list that he put together, uh, just wrote it out on uh, you know, a lined paper in pen in 1936. Okay, so he has uh, a lot of interesting stuff on there, uh, short stories of Anton Chekhov and War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy and other stuff. Okay. Um, so, yeah, curation begins in this most elemental form as list making. But this is another example of where you, you move maybe from analog to digital, from less formal to more formal. And the act of doing that, it invites you to have a little bit of critical awareness about what you're dealing with. So, in this case, someone found Fitzgerald's required reading list and decided to type it up. And they typed typed it up in a a hyperlink format so you know you have this bulleted list of all these works that Fitzgerald mentions in his paper list and then there's a link to each one of these so maybe it's to Amazon I don't know I didn't click through all right now in the process of uh, slightly formalizing that informal list moving it from that analog paper format to that digital uh, pixelated format something happens and that is you start thinking about well, is this really a complete list? Or uh, maybe some of the items on this list should go close together. Like he seems to mention several Russian authors. Maybe we should group the Russian authors together. And geez, whack, how come Shakespeare is not listed on his list here? What's going on here? All right, so in the very process of formalizing one's informal gathering or brainstorming, it, it brings in the opportunity to do some critical thinking do some analyzing to find out what's missing or maybe to figure out ways of creating some kind of a hierarchy or other kind of arrangement that helps you make sense of this massive stuff that you have collected. All right, can you see this movement that I keep talking about? You're going from the kind of random, amateur, casual collecting into a more studious selecting, filtering, and organizing. Okay, another great example of this is from Moby Dick. Oh, I love Moby Dick. And uh, there's there's a chapter in Moby Dick called Cetology, and this is where the narrator Ishmael is deciding that, you know what, there's so many people that really don't understand whales that I'm just going to lay it all out for you and explain everything about whales. And so that's why it's called Cetology, you know, the study of whales. Well, you know, Ishmael, the character, he's, he's a whaler. He's not a scholar. So he, he just sort of puts down what he knows. It's very informal. In fact, he just reaches for whatever kind of uh, way of organizing the different whales that he can think of. He, he, he doesn't know about biological classifications. He just thinks, okay, well, there's big whales and there's little whales. That's kind of like books. And so he uses the different sizes of books. Uh, back in the day, you have the folio size of books, which is a full page of printing paper. And you have other sizes like the quarto and the, the duodecimo. And each of those relate to a different size of 
piece of paper folded so many times to create a different size of book. So he uses this schema of uh, book sizes as a way of starting to organize his own understanding about whales. Okay, now of course this is this is going to go horribly wrong at a certain point, and he finally kind of gives up the whole process. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't create real knowledge, right? In fact, sometimes the very act of creating these and finding where things aren't working is some of the most actionable knowledge that you can create. It's like, wow, uh, you know, I've made this list and it seems complete, but I've obviously left out something that's critical here. That's good knowledge to arrive at. So once again, curating for understanding. You go from a position of sort of randomness that you're trying to put order to that. You're not necessarily professional, but you can do some kind of organizing. And in the process of doing that, you refine your questions as much as your answers. This isn't intellectual activity. This is educational. This is curating for understanding. And by the way, you need to read Obi Moby Dick and give it a better chance because it really is that good. Okay, I'm going to skip a lot of the examples that I have in my uh, online video lecture, so you can go to those if you want. Um, that There are uh, lots of different tools now that are available to help people to do curating. Uh, I, I mentioned you know, certain platforms where you can do playlists or wish lists, but there are also things like social bookmarks. So something like Digo, D-I-I-G-O, is this way that you can uh, sort of annotate the, the, and organize the things that you find online uh, save them in a central location, create uh, groups for content or social groups of people that you share with. And so, like maybe you're doing research on a common topic, this is a way of kind of doing distributed research. It's all quite organized. Lots of different people can be researching, I don't know, cetology, and then they um, um, annotate the websites that they've seen, and they save them to this Digo place, and there's a little Chrome extension or a Firefox add-on that allows you to easily annotate what you've been uh, browsing for online and then you you publish it through Digo and so what starts out as kind of a random collection of web links you've collected once you do gather them together you start sorting them by quality and and uh, uh, whatever other criteria so that that's a thing another tool that's been really important for me in in um, curating content online has been the um, wiki so everybody knows about Wikipedia, and some people are brave enough to actually become a Wikipedia editor, and it has this vastly expanding, uh, all these stubs, you know, that you, you start dividing out topics into subtopics, and away we go. And it's, so it's very flexible that way, and it, it's, it's allowed to kind of grow in an organic way, and yet be highly organized because of the hyperlinks that connect us uh, among the various Wikipedia pages. Great. Well, uh, you can actually create your own wiki. There, there are a lot of different services and sites for doing that. I tend to use the one that is broadly available, which is Google Sites. So if you go to sites.google.com, uh, they have a kind of classic style and a new style, and both of those are, are a way of you easily being able to create a website with hyperlinks among uh, pages that you organize as you would like with, um, with hyperlinks among them. Now, I've used this, this sort of thing a lot with my um, efforts to uh, understand a given uh, topic. Uh, so one summer when I was really getting uh, informed about digital culture, I created a digital culture 
wiki. And then as I was kind of figuring out a topic, I would write a paragraph about that and maybe link out to a couple of things that explained it more. And then as I found out another thing, I would, I, I would organize my grander understanding of digital culture. And so by the end of the summer, I had quite a, a, a thorough um, uh, set of content, which was also searchable and interlinked. But it was also not formal. I had some pages that were truly random, like some pages that would just say random stuff I got to sort through. And then when I had time, I would go through that and figure out, okay, well, where does this fit into the organizational schema that I'm, I'm using to help understand this topic? And it's, it's very nice to have something that's, that's um, searchable and that is accessible and you know is in the cloud. And so if I have an idea from home about some aspect of digital culture I'd forgotten about, I can pull it up from anywhere I can access Google and I can add to that knowledge base and gradually that can become more and more useful to me. Okay, uh, plenty of other interesting examples on the video. I'll mention one other kind of curating because it's of a little different style. All right, so many people are on Twitter nowadays and you can follow people on Twitter, but did you know that if you have an account on Twitter that you can create lists? And these are lists of other Twitter users. So when I was exploring the digital humanities a few years ago, when this was brand new, I, I found someone who I knew was a thought leader. He, he'd, uh, he was an editor of a book that I published an article in, and I, I just knew that, that Dan was uh, in, in these circles. And so I, I did follow Dan on Twitter, but I also followed the list that he had created of digital humanists, so people who are studying the digital humanities. And it's not a very long list, but, you know, Dan goes to conferences or he's involved in like that book project. And so he he's in touch. Just the life that he lives has put him in touch with people who are on the cutting edge of this topic. And so he's cut through a lot of the noise on me trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what's really current in this field. Well, I can get a curated set of something that's very current from that list that he has put together. It's kind of this living and organic sort of way of finding focused content. People tolerate a lot of randomness in their uh, Twitter feeds or in their news feeds, not realizing that you can spend time making sure that the content stream that comes before your eyes is, is relevant and interesting to you. You can mute or unfollow or delete uh, you know, certain social connections and then you can um, follow the one person to find other people and then you can look at the lists that they've made and you can end up going down the rabbit hole on this, but you can also um, really get to a, a richer and more relevant set of people and topics if you will do something like curate a, a Twitter list. Okay, so that's that's another thing. Um, what else do I want to say about that? I was going to talk about Google Collections, but that's going away. All right. Okay, um, so some final thoughts about curation. Um, I guess I've already said that its genius is partly in the ease with which you can move between uh, casual to more formal, uh, you know, less conscious to more conscious, more random to to more organized. And uh, you can do this with uh, 
shopping. You can do it with topics you want to follow. You can do it with media that you prefer and would like to uh, share with other people. Uh, it's, it's what can I do to uh, organize things that matter to me and will matter to communities that I am part of. Okay, now I want to relate this idea of curation to podcasting. Okay, so in, in one respect, um, a podcatching app, uh, the app you use on your smartphone to find and listen to podcasts, is an opportunity for you to curate a stream of podcasts that you'd like to listen to. Um, I use Pocket Casts, and I really like that because you can set up these different filters, and each one is a way of, of uh, limiting which podcasts you pay attention to. So I have a real interest in Britain, and I travel to London a lot, and I love British history and, and British literature, and, and so I found a set of podcasts that are all surround that, but I have a, a lot of other interests as well. Well, I make a filter called British Podcasts, and then I only select those podcasts that uh, go along with that particular interest, and you can, you can curate the things that you want to pay attention to. I have another um, set of, of podcasts, a filter I've created that are, are sort of trial podcasts, ones that have been recommended to me, but I'm not quite sure what I want to think about them. And so I, I, I will subscribe to a bunch of these, but I'll put them into this filtered list. And then I'll just kind of quickly go through those and decide which of them I will add to other lists or my general feed or which ones that I will delete and say no thank you to. So there are a lot of different ways you can curate lists for the consumption of podcasts. Now I want to talk about curation with respect to how that could be of use to someone who is developing their own podcast. And I'm going to tie this in with an assignment that I'm going to be giving to my students. You can uh, collect a set of podcasts that help to identify a content area or a format that you are interested in as you're coming up with your own podcast. So quite obviously, if I want to do a cooking podcast, one of the, my students recently mentioned a, a food podcast, and I, it made, made me ask the question, are there Instant Pot podcasts out there? Because I'm a big Instant Pot user. I love to do that. Um, so I could curate a set of podcasts that are about food or slow cookers or pressure cookers or Instant Pots themselves, and that would be one thing that I could do to help me get ready to conceptualize what I might do in contributing to that space. However, I could do the same thing, setting aside content and instead thinking about format. Now, I have a past episode that talks all about podcast formats. And so it's possible that you could take the same content and address it in very different formats, right? So if I want to take that... Uh, cooking or pot, excuse me, instant potting that I'm so interested in. Um, uh, I think the most obvious format for that might be something like uh, a, a how-to educational type podcast. You know, today we're going to talk about how to make um, killer, um, what is it, what's that stuff I like so much? Pastrami in your instant pot. I actually did do that. And um, so then the, the, the order might be uh, 
you know, getting ingredients or steps to take, problems you might have, walking through the recipe. I could make an instructional video. But wait a minute, that's not my only option. I know about all these other formats. Um, I could um, take that other kind of educational format where it's more like a, less a how-to and more of a course. So I could go through, you know, principles of of nutrition in one episode, and then uh, talk all about the uh, equipment itself of the instant pod in another one, and then I could give instructions about okay, we got these different types of of uh, foods that work best with instant pod, and this another episode on these are ones that might not work very well with instant pod, and so it could be more like a curriculum rather than a simple kind of how-to podcast. But wait a minute, there are more options than that. I could do an instant pot podcast that that is, uh, you know, just one of those analytical commentary ones. I could. What about we have a roundtable? We have a. Um, uh, how's this? We have a uh, uh, a cook, a a busy mother, and a fussy child who each week get together and um, sample a different instant pot recipe, and then they will uh, talk about. Um, whether this is worth making in terms of whatever the interests are of those hosts. Okay, maybe that could fly, could be interesting. Um, but, but wait a minute, there are other things that could be done as well. What about uh, a narrative of some kind? What about a, uh, um, I could give a, a cook's diary, a personal narrative podcast, where it's not about giving recipes or walking people through it, but I, I use the different things I made in the Instant Pot as a way of talking about my life or about my philosophies on the world. Uh, you know, I have um, developed over time a killer chicken korma recipe in the Instant Pot, and I could go through the stages of how I discovered the, the glories of adding in Greek yogurt along with uh, whole coconut milk and, and how this took me to the next level and that's sort of like leveling up in life. I can turn it into a whole philosophy of instant potting. Yeah, yeah, I could do that. Uh, but, but wait a minute, there are other kinds of narrative too. I could, I could have, yeah, you know, there's those investigative journalism shows. How could that tie in with instant pot? The instant pot criminal investigation. Someone gets murdered by their mother's cooking. I know I'm just spitballing right here, but okay, what am I doing? I am brainstorming, but I'm also in the process of doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm curating possibilities for what I might do with this future podcast. Um, and I, so I've done that both by looking at content. I've done that by looking at format. And in both cases, I could go out and find other people's podcasts that um, maybe share the same content, but different formats or vice versa. And this could inform my developing perspective podcast. All right, so my students have reached a point where they are doing, they, they have done some preliminary pitches on a wide range of uh, different podcasting topics. Um, but I'm going to be asking them each to curate a set of podcasts that inform uh, their interests in a future podcast. So it's not just a matter of finding two or three podcasts that you can compare to the perspective podcast you have. It's called, let's spend some real time thinking about a specific uh, um, segment of 
podcasting and exploring that, curating around that idea. And then that might be something that you can, or others could build upon. Let me give an example. I've talked a lot about um, curating content or curating on the basis of format, but you could also curate on any other criteria that relate to podcasting. For example, um, length. One could curate a set of podcasts that are all underneath five minutes or those that are over an hour long. And we'd come up with some really interesting generalizations about that aspect of format by just focusing on length. Or how about audience? One could go through and look at, okay, I'm going to only look at podcasts that are aimed at a Spanish-speaking audience or at children. And this might take you out of the normal way that you would be thinking about things. I don't even know what kind of Spanish-speaking podcasts are out there. I've, I've explored the French ones, and the ones that I've done in French, um, they have some really different kinds of sensibilities. Okay, well then that's something new that I might learn about podcasting as I curate uh, foreign language-oriented podcasts. Or um, if I targeted a specific demographic like, like children or women. There, I think there are a lot of uh, women's podcasts, either about women or for women or both. Uh, so what about that? Or, or even going down the long tail a little further on that, what about um, minority women? Where, where are all the uh, Puerto Rican women podcasts out there? And, and don't laugh because you, you'll be surprised that you'll find that there's more than one or two. And after you find a set of them, all of a sudden you have something that you can say that's of interest about that sort of demographic or maybe the formats that seem to go along well with that particular um, um, demographic or, or what have you. All right. So I'm hoping that my students will grasp the concept of curation and realize that this is something that will help them to uh, explore and discover aspects of podcasts and podcasting that will be relevant for their own future podcasts they're going to be creating and also for others. So what I'm not going to be asking them to do is simply to run with a, a pitch that they've already done and find additional examples of comparable podcasts. Instead, I'm going to ask them to focus on some kind of a, a segment that could be of interest to them, but also to other people in, in some of the ways that I've, I've just outlined. So that's the assignment that I'm going to give to them. And then the process will be that I will have them come onto this podcast as guests, and they are going to give a uh, segment pitch, or what, I don't know if that's right to call it. They're going to um, pitch their curated set of podcasts. So it's it's not like a. Um, it's more a matter of sharing a curated, annotated list, than it is making a, a new pitch for another possible podcast. It's more about um, using this curating as a way of analyzing. And then that will end up being something that can be shared with other people. All right, so that's where we're at in our process right now. And in future episodes, I'll be featuring a lot of these students who are going to come in and they're going to inform us about podcasts and podcasting in general. That will be an end in itself and content that others will appreciate just because that might matter to them. But for those students themselves, it will also be an interim step to get them on their way towards making their own podcasts. Now, as a just a a footnote to all of this and as a way of preparing for a future 
the, the next episode that I want to put out on this podcast. Um, and that is the topic of crowdsourcing. So as we organize ourselves and create content in an organized fashion and then publish that, it is an opportunity to um, draw upon the talents and abilities, uh, the, the, the time and attention of a lot of people to bring to bear on solving a single problem or addressing a single issue. So I'm going to use the 22 students that I currently have to help crowdsource some analysis of podcasts and podcasting. So it's not just going to be from my experience, but it's going to be from theirs. Well, I've pretty much given half of the, the lecture there on, on crowdsourcing right there. But I, I will give more background on that because there's so much fascinating crowdsourcing that's going on online. But I just want to give a hint right now that uh, crowdsourcing is something that can be done in uh, creating uh, good content about podcasting that will be valuable both to these students and to other people out there at large. 45 minutes, geez. Anyway... That's all for now.